Chapter 7 A Christian giant arises in Egypt. His father martyred, the boy Origen, saved by his mother, becomes an evangelical powerhouse and a teacher whose students one by one perish. Young Origen of Alexandria could not remember a time when he had never heard of Jesus Christ. He was a product, that is, of a Christian family, a growing phenomenon in the 2nd century Roman Empire as couples were converted and raised their children in the new faith. It was also a phenomenon that many authorities would have liked to suppress and much of the populace would have liked to destroy. Christians were atheists, after all. They offended the gods and brought needless ruin on the world. Such was the popular view. As Origen had known since infancy, being a Christian was a very dangerous business. Still, he and his six younger brothers felt a powerful security in the figure of their father, Leonides, a loyal Roman and prominent resident of the empire's second most important city. In the past, few Christians had been arrested in Alexandria, though it was certainly happening elsewhere in the empire. Moreover, no official felt strong enough to take down Leonides, despite the fact that he had made no secret of his faith and spoke boldly of it in public. His sons not only loved him, they lived in awe of him. He was their father and their hero. He was tough, too, especially in his insistence that they use the minds God had given them to learn the faith they must live by. Origen his, was a particularly good student. Quick at his studies, he not only memorized the lines of scripture his father gave him every day, he raised penetrating questions about their meaning. Don't go prying into two great things for you, his father admonished him. He was just a boy. He must be content with the simplest understanding of these passages. Leonides was, of course, pleased. As his young son lay sleeping, the father would quietly kiss his chest, dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. The flame of faith was burning bright and hungry in this lad. He was an unfolding treasure. What would he become when he grew up? But Leonides did not live to see his son grow up. There came one day the dreaded knock on the door, or so at least one may suppose. A new governor, named Latus, had been appointed for Alexandria. A new regime was in office, and a crackdown on Christians was underway. A warrant had been issued for the arrest of Leonides. He was taken away, says the Christian historian Eusebius. The penalty was high. Not only would he face death, his property would be seized, his family made homeless and destitute, and his wife left solely responsible for raising the seven children. All this he could escape by simply denying Christ, swearing the oath or burning the incense, his eldest son inscribed an urgent letter to him. Be sure that you don't change your mind because of us, he wrote. Don't relent, but die as a martyr in the faith. All the hold all in the faith all the family holds dear. Origen need not have worried. Leonides knew what he had to do. How long the trial lasted, history does not record. There is no record of the proceedings. But when the day came that the judge pronounced the death sentence, the teenage origin resolved to join his father and perish with him. Frantically, he searched for his clothes, but they were nowhere to be found. Die as a martyr, he was prepared to do. Run through the streets of Alexandria naked, he was not. St. Leonides died that day under a Roman executioner's sword. The year it was A.D. 202. Origen was 16. He lived because his mother had hidden his clothes, lived to become the man many regard as the greatest Christian writer, theologian, and evangelist of the post-biblical period. All Christendom for the next 2,000 years will become the beneficiary of his mother's actions. Origen was also an Egyptian and an, Alex and an Alexandrian, and that meant something. Alexandria was a fascinating, powerful, and volatile city. Rome was the capital of the empire, but Alexandria was wealthier and more cosmopolitan, the center of learning and the site of renowned landmarks. The port's lighthouse rose 400 feet into the air and was accounted one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. There was a zoo, a museum, and an astounding library comprising almost a million books, by far the greatest collection in antiquity. Geography favored the queen of cities. Situated near the westernmost of the four miles of the Nile River, it linked the worlds of Europe, Africa, and the Far East. And through it, the grain of Egypt, breadbasket of the empire, poured across the Mediterranean to Italy and Rome. Alexandria was a crossroads for the populations as well. In addition to the native Egyptians who spoke Coptic, the city was inhabited by Greeks and Jews. 
These bore a habitual grudge against each other, frequently resulting in massive bloodshed. The rest of the Empire thought of Alexandrians as clever, boastful, sarcastic, and finally, defiant of authority, a product of their imaginative ingenuity that was destined one day to cost them their language and national identity. A Roman admirer of the city wrote that if he were assigned the task of defending Alexandrians and proving that they were neither irresponsible nor treacherous, he would find the task hopeless. I could make a long speech, but it would be a wasted effort, he said. Within this ferment, many religions mixed. Judaism was flavored with Platonism, and Greek gods were grafted into Egyptian deities. Jews had long maintained a strong and scholarly presence in Alexandria, and one of the, and one last one of lasting historical significance, for it was here that Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, was created. The indigenous Egyptian religion tended toward animal worship, and each town might have its own animal, bird, or fish as a deity, leading to rivalries that could turn bloody. Romans thought of this Egyptian proclivity ridiculous. However, they learned that the Egyptians took it very seriously when a Roman soldier accidentally killed a cat and was lynched by a mob. The historian Eusebius describes Alexandria as a large company of believers, men and women alike, with an extremely severe rule of life. Such asceticism, as it is called from the Greek word used to describe athletic training, went back to Paul's observation that I pummel my body and subdue it. It involved strict fasts, indifference to material possessions, a celibate life, contempt for the body and physical comfort, and the removal of oneself from the security of even a home. This stern regimen could characterize Egyptian Christianity for centuries to come, but it probably originates in one of the two conflicting versions of Gnosticism, both of which took deep root in Egypt and Alexandria during the first and second centuries. By then, Alexandria had surpassed both Rome and Athens as the empire's liveliest center of intellectual inquiry. The church at Alexandria shared this robust mood. It was the most theologically active and wealthiest Christian body in the empire. Five strong figures had dominated early Christian history in Alexandria. Origen was to become the sixth. The first of those figures was that ubiquitous personage of the New Testament, John Mark. He was identified by Paul as the cousin of Barnabas, who quit the Paul-Barnabas mission in Galatia, costing him Paul's confidence. He later accompanied Barnabas on a mission to Cyprus, and still later, having reconciled with Paul, turned up in Rome. Mark is also associated with Peter, whose memoirs Peter, er, whose memoirs Mark wrote, says the first century, century Christian historian Papias. These became the second gospel of the New Testament. Tradition, though not the Bible, also identifies Mark as the son of the Mary in whose house at Jerusalem the Last Supper took place, and where some seven weeks later the Holy Spirit descended on the apostles at Pentecost. Finally, it is reasonable to conclude that the young man who escaped naked after Jesus' arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane is the same John Mark, since none of the other three Gospels mention the incident. Eusebius adds to the story. From Rome, Mark traveled to Alexandria, he writes, and became the first bishop of the Egyptian, or Coptic, church. In the Coptic's tradition, Mark had been born into a Jewish family in Libya, where Berber attacks on the village forced his parents to flee. They resettled in Cana of Galilee. Thereafter, Coptic accounts vary. In one version, Peter became a family friend, and after the death of Mark's father, took a hand in raising the boy. Peter refers to Mark in, the, in his first epistle as his son, using the Greek term indicating a familial rather than merely spiritual relationship. By the time of the resurrection, Mark's widowed mother had moved to Jerusalem, where he, now a teenager, became part of the Christian community. An ancient tradition calls him stumpy-fingered, which may have meant that his hands were deformed or mutilated, but the mysterious disability did not prevent him from being Peter's scribe. The cops recorded a miracle on Mark's first arrival in Alexandria, around A.D. 45. The story goes that on disembarking from a ship, he went looking for a cobbler to repair a, boat, a broken sandal strap. He found a workman named Ananias, who tackled the stubborn leather with too much zeal and drove the awl into his own left hand. As Ananias howled in pain, Mark made clay of spittle and dust, prayed and anointed the wound, healing it instantly. Ananias, already a Christian, took Mark to his home. 
Another very early believer from Alexandria was the mysterious Apollos, who later moved to Ephesus and Corinth and assisted Paul. However, there is no known connection between Apollos and Mark. Coptic Christians believe that Mark served as Alexandria's bishop until the year 62, when his labor for the gospel began to attract hostile attention. Appointing Aninus as bishop, along with twelve priests and seven deacons, he fled the city. Not an act of cowardice, says the Copts, since Jesus himself had said, when they persecute in one town, flee to the next. A few years later, Mark slipped back into Alexandria and was greeted joyfully by his spiritual children. But this time, he could not evade the Christian's opponents. He was captured, tied to the tail of a horse, and dragged over the cobbled streets of Alexandria until his body was torn to pieces. The year, says the Copts, was A.D. 68. However historically substantial these Coptic traditions of Mark's ministry in Alexandria, one thing seems very substantial indeed. The next 60 to 100 years of Christian history in the empire's second city are a blank. Eusebius, who composed the first comprehensive history of the church in the early 4th century, lists the name of the bishops who succeeded Mark, Ninus, Abilius, Serdan, and so forth. But it was not until the 10th bishop, Julian, that he supplies more than a bare name, and by then, more than a hundred years have passed. If Christianity was taken to Egypt by the middle of the first century, writes C. Wilfred Griggs in his authoritative early Egyptian Christianity, an inexplicable, an inexplicable silence in Christian sources concerning the leaders of the movement and the development of the church over the next 125 to 150 years is probably unique in the history of Christianity. Oddly, it was not until the 20th century that any real clue to the missing years of early Egyptian Christianity came to light. At Neg Hammadi, 60 miles downstream from modern Luxor on the Nile, a collection of 13 papyrus codices was found in a jar buried in a pagan cemetery, 11 of them complete with their leather, with their leather bindings. Written in Coptic and dated from the 3rd to 5th centuries, they constituted a library of Gnostic texts evidence of early Egyptian preoccupation with Gnosticism. Significantly, other, another discovery made a half-century earlier at the Fayum Oasis, 250 miles north of Neg Hammadi, included a fragment of John's Gospel dated to the beginning of the 2nd century, equally tangible evidence of very early Christian activity in Egypt. So what happened? Were the Christians and Gnostics in keen dispute during those missing years? There is no evidence of it. One theory of that is that the story of Mark's evangelism in Alexandria is a myth, and that Christianity came to the city later from an unknown source. But Alexandria was the second city of the empire, and it would not have been long neglected by Christian missionaries. Then there is further evidence of the gospel fragment. So the mystery remains. By the year 130, the fog suddenly lifts. The second great figure of Alexandrian Christianity appears in the person of a man who was later denounced as not Christian at all. His name was Basilides. Basilides. He began as a conventional Christian, but in his quest to enhance Christianity with elements drawn from Judaism, Paganism, and Platonism, he developed in Alexandria a full-blown Gnosticism. He was an immense, it was an immense project. His influence was enormous, and since no self-correcting boundaries, it rapidly grew into the bazaar. Just how bizarre was explained in the Christian's response to Basilides. Arrhenius, the bishop of Lan, in his Against Heresies, written in 180, reports that Basilides thought that there was an ultimate God who existed before all things, and that he begot thought, logos, prudence, and other powers. From these powers uh, proceeded yet further powers, and by successive steps, there emerged 365 levels of heavens between the, this earth and the original or ultimate God. According to Basilides, this earth uh, was ruled by the God of the Jews, Yahweh, whom he saw as a minor and corrupt deity. When conflict arose among the spiritual powers of this earth, Yahweh appealed to the unoriginate God for help, and in response, he sent his first emanation. This was thought who is to be born as Christ on earth, since it is impossible for such a lofty entity to suffer. At the, at the time of the crucifixion, Jesus switched places with Simon of Cyrene. On and on it goes.
Basilides' disciples adding to their, their own details, as did Valentinus, Heracleon, and other Gnostic teachers during the 2nd century. Alexandrians reveled in this. Always creative and imaginative, they delighted in finding hidden mysteries behind ancient texts, even exploring ever-deepening levels of illumination through arduous stages as a, of initiation, and finally, in joining in the predestined few who had finally arrived at the doorstep of secret wisdom. The more preposterous it sounded, the more complex the truths, the more likely its validity, they said, because it involved realities that ordinarily unenlightened people could never deduce for themselves. Devout believer or ancient con man. Despite a criminal past, Peregrinus became a Christian hero, then built the brethren. Was he a total phony? The historians still can't decide. His unflattering nickname was Proteus, after a mythical sea god given to assuming various shapes, just as Proteus kept changing his religion. But his real name, Peregrinus, means wanderer. Down through the centuries, those who have, those who have asked who examined the life of Peregrinus Proteus have asked several questions. Was he sincere but misguided? Or was he a self-proclaiming sham, a second century forerunner to the 20th century religious con man, warming the hearts of the faithful while crippling their uh, crippling, sorry, while emptying their pockets. And whatever he was, why did he suicidally set fire to himself after the Olympic Games? The case for Peregrinus as a fraud is laid out by the skeptical satirist Lucian of Samosota in a detailed account of Peregrinus' life. Lucian wrote fiction, but Peregrinus was not one of his invented characters since he's mentioned by other contemporary writers, including Tatian, Athena. Athenagoras, Tertullian, Maximus Tyrius, and Eusebius. Born to a wealthy family at Perium on the Hellespont, the straits known to later history as the Dardanelles at the northeast corner of the Aegean, he first ran afoul of authority by committing adultery. He then corrupted a handsome boy and managed to escape the consequences by paying off the boy's impoverished parents. Those misdeeds might have been passed off as youthful indiscretions, but Lucian also reported that Peregrinus's criminal activity rapidly expanded. He strangled his father to death and bought his way out of justice by, deceiving, by deeding his property to the city. No longer welcome at home, he began roaming from one country to another. When he discovered the community of Christians in Palestine, he quickly joined, learning everything he could about their beliefs. In a trice, he made them all look like children, Lucian writes, for he was a prophet, cult leader, and head of the synagogue. He interpreted and examined some of their books and even composed many. After being seized and imprisoned for his participation in the new faith, he received every form of attention from the Christians whom he had dazzled. From every bleak, from every from the very break of day, aged widows and orphaned children could be seen waiting near the prison, Lucian writes. Elaborate meals were brought in for him, and sacred books were read aloud. Indeed, people came even from cities in Asia sent by the Christians at their common expense to succor and defend and encourage the hero. They show incredible speed whenever any such public action is taken, for in no time they lavish their all. As the skeptical Lucian, the poor Christian wretches, their first lawgiver persuaded them that they are all brothers of one another, after they have transgressed once, so if any charlatan and trickster, able to profit by occasion, comes among them, he quickly acquires sudden wealth by imposing upon simple folk. Having impressed the Syrian governor with his philosophies, Peregrinus was freed and began again to roam about, possessing an ample source of funds from the Christians, through whose ministrations he lived an unalloyed prosperity. Eventually, however, he slipped up. He was seen sneaking food from the Christians forbade, Christians forbade and, he, um, and he was ejected from their company. After trying unsuccessfully to recover his property from the city where his father was slain, he dabbled in yoga and Brahmanism, taking up residence in Rome as a cynic philosopher until he was expelled for publicly mocking the emperor. So off he went to Greece, where he libeled a man outstanding in literary attainments and position, and barely escaped a mob bent on stoning him to death. At last, he was disregarded by all, and no longer so admired, Lucian writes, for all his stuff was stale and he could not turn out any further novelty. Still craving acclaim, 
he announced that he was that after the end of the Olympic Games in 165, he would burn himself to death in public. He seemed confident that the crowd would cling to him and not give him over to the fire, but retain him in life, against his will, naturally. So he arranged for a pit full of wood to be set, ab- set, ablaze, set ablaze outside the city of Olympia. However, instead of begging him to save himself, the crowd began chanting, Carry out your purpose. After exclaiming, Spirits of my mother and my father, receive me with favor, he jumped into the flames, which consumed him. I could not control my laughter, said Lucian. The thought of Peregrinus invoking the spirit of the father whom he had murdered. In the end, Lucian sums up sums him up as a poor wretch who never fixed his gaze on the Veritas and the Verities, but always did and said everything, with a view to glory and the praise of the multitude. By some accounts, Peregrinus had a cult following for a brief time after his death, and a statue was erected in his memory. His story reveals important details about Christianity in the mid-2nd century. There were food laws, which he broke. Worship still took place in a synagogue, which he for a time led. And there was extensive, extensive communication between communities separated by hundreds of miles, which sent emeries to feed and comfort him in prison. The, scholar, the classical scholar A. M. Harmon, in his translation of Lucian, observes that many critics see Peregrinus not as a fake, but as an earnest seeker of truth. However, Harmon writes, such events as his attempting to get back the inheritance he renounced after murdering his father make it impossible to see him an earnest and steadfast man. As for the human body and how the individual should regard it, Gnosticism took two diametrically different paths. Some schools taught that the body was a cage of mud in which an evil god, often the Jewish Yahweh, had imprisoned pure souls. The body must therefore be despised, they said, and extreme disciplines followed from this. Others, like the Gnostic and avowed Christian Carpocrates, Carpocrates, considered the body irrelevant and taught that therefore one could do without whatever one could do with it, whatever one pleased. All constraints could be ignored. The excesses that followed from this can be imagined. To the Christians at Alexandria, it rapidly became clear that unless some means could be found to distinguish Christianity from Gnosticism, the former would disintegrate into chaos of theological gibberish and moral squalor. The man who first realized this and did something about it became the third great figure of Alexandrian history. And the the one about whom the least is known, his name was Pantinus, and the method he chose to correct the problem was to establish a school in about 190, known as the Catechetical School of Alexandria. In it, he began training Christian teachers, evangelists, and other leaders, carefully distinguishing what Christianity believed from what Gnostics believed. Pantinus was a Jew, probably from Sicily, because he was known as the Sicilian Bee, a nickname conferred on him by one of his students, who saw him collecting nectar from all the flowers of the prophetic and apostolic meadow, Schooled in Hebrew, he studied Greek philosophy in Sicily and became a Stoic, employing elements of Pythagorean Platonism before converting to Christianity. He brought with him to Alexandria a global wealth of knowledge and was the first head of the school, an institution without equal in the ancient Christian world, probably the first Christian seminary. Little else is known about Pantinus except for one curious story. His work at the catechetical school was interrupted one day by unexpected visitors. A delegation from India had become so impressed with reports of his teaching that they asked him to come with them to engage and challenge the Hindu teachers of their land. The Bishop of Alexandria agreed that Pantinus should go, and the amazing accuracy with which other Alexandrian Christians, one of them origin, later described the culture of India leads great credibility to the story. The information doubtless came from Pantinus's reports back to Alexandria or from students he sent from India to the catechetical school. The fourth figure in Egyptian Christianity is the bishop credited with sending Pantinus to India. This was Bishop Dimitri of Alexandria, who presided over the Christian the city's Christian from 190 to 233, a 43-year regime during which he curbed the doctrinal and moral chaos brought by Gnosticism, and established Alexandrian Christianity as a major influence in Christian development for the next four centuries. 
His own background was far from academic. In the Coptic tradition, he was an illiterate, married farmer, a Christian who became a bishop as a result of an odd occurrence. His predecessor, Bishop Julian, lay dying and suddenly had a vision that the man who, sh who should be the next bishop would visit him the next day, bearing a gift of fresh grapes. And on the following day, Demetrius, doubtless a faithful member of Julian's flock, came to his bedside bearing clusters of grapes from his vineyard. The scene that followed can be reconstructed. Those attending the stricken man would have stared wide-eyed as the farmer, bearing his grapes, entered the room. There would have been a moment of unbelief. This? Muddy boots? Rustic, weathered face? This? The next bishop of Alexandria? A man who could neither read nor write was to become bishop of what was probably the most literate Christian community in all the empire? Still, the vision was the vision. You're our next bishop, someone would have declared. Apparently, Demetrius's first reaction was to turn and run. He was seized by others, says Eusebius. The farmer was plainly panic-stricken. Placed in fetters, he had to be forcibly persuaded to assume the office. But he became a tough administrator with the farmer's sense of practical reality. When he died, the Gnostic influences in Alexandria had been significantly diminished. Pantinus's successor as principal of the catechetical school was the fifth of the five luminaries who preceded Origen. Given a proud Roman name, Titus Flavius Clemens, known as Clement, was born a pagan at Athens and became a convert to Christianity as a young man. He traveled widely in his search of education, gaining instructions in the faith from teachers throughout the Mediterranean world, and enrolled as a pupil in Pantinus's school. When Pantinus departed for India, Around AD 190, Clement succeeded him as principal. He arrived at Alexandria just as Patinus had begun seriously addressing the Gnostic problem. The Christians were divided, some deeply into Gnosticism, others so bitterly appalled at the proliferation of bizarre competing theories masquerading as advanced knowledge that they had become hostile to any intellectual endeavor at all. Clement plunged into the fray with the generous and optimistic spirit that made his writings appealing as well as persuasive, he set out to forge a middle path between the Gnostic speculation and the Christian anti-intellectuals. He wanted to show educated pagans that it was possible to become a Christian without sacrificing the intelligence, and to show wary believers that even Plato and the Greek philosophers have grasped some elements of Christian truth. Thanks, Clemens believed, to their study of the Hebrew scriptures. Philosophy was to the Greeks what the law was to the Jews, he said. It was the schoolmaster preparing them to receive the coming of Christ. One indeed is the way of truth, he writes, but into it, as into an ever-flowing river, streams from everywhere are confluent. While philosophy might inform faith, it is scripture that ultimately ruled. But in reading scripture, Clement proposed a two-fold guide to prevent, prevent Gnostic excesses. First, that Christians never take literally any passages that seem to be fundamentally contrary to the nature of God. He thereby refuted the Gnostics, who say that the God of the Old Testament as unreasonable and cruel. Second, they should consider each passage in the light of the Bible as a whole, a check on the Gnostics whose overactive imaginations could spin strange fantasies from a single verse. Clement's works around, abound in quotations from classical philosophy, designed to put the cultivated reader at ease, while leading him past the objections that classical thought presented to Christianity. For example, Platonists asked, if God is by definition unchanging, how could he leave heaven and become human? Clement answered that what was unchanging was God's love for humankind, that love is manifested through his providence, which would necessarily adapt to changing human needs. And Jesus was, crowning, was a crowning example of God's never-changing love, expressed in God's breakthrough into the natural world, an act of rescue. Clement also worked to resolve another conflict, that between the Gnostics, Libertines, and the extreme ascetics. His treatise opposing the former was deemed so graphic in its depictions or in its descriptions in the editors of an 1885 English translation of Clement's Miscellanies, rendered the passage relating to Carpocrates in Latin so that scholars only might pursue it or peruse it. Yet Clement was also skeptical of a trend among Christians to pursue excessive and demonstrative physical rigors. The, Christian, or the middle way was best, he taught. 
The rich man need not reduce himself to poverty, but should give generously to the poor and handle his wealth with detachment. Virginity was good, but marriage was better. Clement, in fact, wrote more positively of marital love than did any other Christian of his time. Death by martyrdom, he taught, was no more valuable than a daily martyrdom of the will in which the tumult of selfish desires is stilled and the heart turned toward God. The person is blessed who progresses on this path, immersed in the study of Scripture, ever growing in knowledge of God and tranquil self-control, and actively caring for others. However, the phenomenon of martyrdom posed further problems for Clement, because Gnosticism made death for the faith unnecessary under any conditions. To the Gnostics, Jesus is often little more than a phantom, so why bother to suffer physically for something so unsubstantial? Second, if the whole of Christianity had to do with secret knowledge, how could you bear public witness to it? For witness is what the Greek word for martyr meant. Finally, if a mystical inner transformation was the most important thing, why balk at doing something as trifling as to offer a pinch of incense to the emperor? After all, facilities had taught, or so his critics said, that such capitulation was no crime, and that faith could be denied conveniently and lightheartedly. While such a doctrine was poison to a people at the doorstep of suffering, a parallel danger lay on the opposite side. Panicked Christians, like the youthful origin, might rush into martyrdom, according it as a way to swiftly resolve the intolerable tension. Some believed that such a headlong action would erase any sins committed in this life and ushered the martyr directly into paradise, an easier step, all told, than a life of patient, daily self-discipline. Once again, Clement pointed to the middle path. He opposed impious and cowardly Gnostics who mocked true martyrs as foolish and upheld martyrdom as an honor for those forced to endure it, a path of cleansing and glory. But those who purposely rush to their deaths are not martyrs at all, he said. They give themselves up to a futile death, like Indian fakers in a senseless fire. Clement's work was brilliant and effective, but it had a hidden flaw, one which did not become apparent for generations. In all his emphasis on using philosophy to inform Christianity, he failed to question the underlying premise that knowledge, gnosis, was the real key to enlightenment. He challenged the content of Gnosticism, but tried to recover the word Gnostic for Christian use. He believed that some people were true Gnostics, selected by God to receive advanced revelation and to teach it to others. In his miscellanies, he scattered those revelations in a deliberately jumbled way so that the illumined could perceive them and the less advanced, who might be harmed by what they could not handle, could not. In a recent in a recent discovered letter, Clements writes that Mark did, indeed, compose his secret gospel, which was given only to the inner circle of advanced believers. Thus, elements of Gnosticism tarnished his mon monumental work. Consistent with his beliefs, when the persecution that claimed Origen's father broke out, Clement fled to Cappadocia, Cappadocia in Asia Minor. There, he spent his last years with a student, Alexander, and died around 217. The circumstances of his death are not known. Leonides had been killed, Clement had fled, and the city's Christian community was in disarray. Young Origen struggled to feed his family, but to do so, he must first compete, complete his education. God, as he no doubt saw it, helped him. A wealthy woman, otherwise unidentified, generously provided him with room and board while he finished his studies. He rapidly progressed from student to teacher and was able to contribute to the support of his mother and brothers. But his father's martyrdom still weighed heavily on him. Should he somehow have persisted in joining his father in death? Was he really as committed to Christ as his father had been? Or was he in reality a coward? Finally, he resolved on an act which, he decided, would make his own commitment unmistakable. In the ancient pagan religion of Egypt, there had been a means by which young men proved their loyalty to the gods. Why not emulate it as a Christian? Did not the scripture, not the scripture say that some men made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the, heavens, the kingdom of heaven's sake? Suppose he, in fact, had this done. Would this not once and for all give the lie to the gossip that Christians were sexually promiscuous? The expedient finally seemed obvious to him, and he had himself castrated.
Why the Bible condones slavery. All the ancient world depended on it. But when the campaign to abolish it fully began, it was the Christians who would lead it, often against fierce opposition from other Christians. Though it was Christians who during the next 20 centuries would lead the world in battle to stamp out slavery, often against the determined opposition of other Christians, that battle began during an era of almost universal acceptance of the practice, which had long been pervasive throughout the Greco-Roman world. As far as is known, Jesus had never preached against slavery. In fact, Paul described Christians as slaves of God. Until the 4th century, the only other mention of slavery by Christians was in the form of appeals to slave masters for compassion and to slaves themselves for obedience. Slaves obey your earthly masters with respect and with fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ, Paul wrote in Ephesians 6.9. Masters, treat your slaves in the same way and do not threaten them, since you know that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. Slavery was everywhere accepted in the Mediterranean world, as it was in all major civilizations at the, t- uh, at the time from Mesopotamia to China. Both the Roman and Greek economies were actually based on slavery, in that slaves comprised the primary workforce in the countryside and the cities. Two cultural traditions made slave labor vital in the Roman Empire. First, it was not acceptable for free men to take orders from anyone except their fathers or military leaders. Second, it was beneath the dignity of Roman citizens to actually perform manual labor. By the time of Claudius in AD 41-54, historian Edward Gibbon estimates slaves equaled freemen in number. Later historians put the proportion at perhaps one-third slave in most urban areas. A typical Christian congregation included both slave owners and slaves. Moral concerns had seldom surfaced. Plato, for example, included a slave class in his ideal republic. Aristotle held that from the hour of their birth, some are marked for subjection, others for rule. He presented the view that prevailed among Greeks and Romans. Slavery was good for everyone. Masters gained workers and slaves benefited from the guidance of the superiors. Only the small sect of Essenes at Qumran and the Egyptian Jewish community called the Therapeutae are known to have rejected slavery in principle. Slavery as practiced in the first century Roman Empire differed significantly from that in later centuries. Race, for example, played almost no role. Slaves came from all races, education of slaves was encouraged, and some were better educated than their owners. Many slaves held highly sensitive and responsible positions. They could own property, including other slaves. Their religious practices and responsibilities were the same as those of the freeborn. No laws prohibited public assembly of slaves. Most significant, er, most significant urban and domestic slaves could usually expect to be freed by age 30. Nor were, legal, nor were legal and social status precisely linked. For example, a slave named Erasmus was the treasurer of the provincial capital of Corinth and was probably the most socially distinguished member of that city's Christian congregation. On the other hand, a relationship of masters and slaves were often ambivalent. Slaves or ex-slaves were generally treated as social inferiors regardless of wealth. However, many slaves led wretched lives. Those who had been sentenced to slavery by the court as convicted criminals had no hope of manumission, that is, release. Such convicts were usually worked to death in mines or rowing galleys, or forced to fight to the death as gladiators. In rural areas, many slaves performed arduous manual labor. In urban settings, some were forced into prostitution, even as children. On the other hand, domestic slaves often had only light duties, and many slaves worked in what were essentially civil service positions. Indeed, they pursued a wide variety of occupations. Slave ranks included doctors, teachers, writers, grammarians, accountants, agents, bailiffs, overseers, secretaries, singers, actors, and sea captains. Romans followed practices already established by the Greeks to make the system work smoothly. Beyond receiving room and board, slaves were allowed to earn and save money, and to make contracts. They were given holidays, often a time limit was placed on their servitude. After AD 200, they were allowed to marry, although it remained more usual for a monogamous couple to live in concubinage. But many slavery, for many, slavery provided not only economic security, but also an avenue to eventual prosperity. Most contemplated the prospect of eventual manumission as a reward for faithful work. 
Besides being enslaved, it's a court-imposed punishment. Following criminal conviction, a variety of circumstances led to people becoming slaves. Some were sentenced to slavery for debt. Athens was unique among cities for outlawing enslavement for debt. Some were born into slavery. Some had been taken prisoner of war or captured by pirates. Stealing other human beings had been practiced in the, in the Mediterranean basin for centuries. Often in these societies, people simply abandoned unwanted babies, leaving them to die of exposure. If found, these infants were usually raised as slaves. Many people sold themselves into slavery to pay debts, to obtain a special job, to climb socially, since Roman citizen might be bestowed upon release, and most often to live a more secure and less strenuous life than the freeborn, poor, the freeborn poor could expect. Domestic slaves acquired the social status of the master's household. Slaves who saved enough money were often able to buy back their freedom. Some earned release by performing a particular service. Many were willed freedom at their master's death. The frequency of manumission actually became a problem in the Roman Empire. Caesar Augustus introduced laws to limit the numbers who could be freed. After the first century, following the end of the great wars of conquest that had brought in a steady stream of captive soldiers, the children of slaves served as the primary source. Meanwhile, even without explicit teachings in opposition to slavery, Christianity began to erode the system's foundations. Second century Christians, like Justin Martyr, deplored the buying and selling of children. Others rallied against, or railed against the trade in, in gladiators. The spur for this growing Christian opposition to slavery lay in Christian insistence on the equality of all people in Christ. Christian salvation, faith's greatest gift, was equally available to slave and free, and was more important than earthly circumstances. Christians did not share the Roman contempt for work. They regarded converted slaves as brothers and sisters. For we were all baptized by one spirit in the body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 12:13. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you all one in Christ. In Romans 8:38, he declared that there should be no worldly impediment between believer and God. Thus, from that beginning, Christianity would come to play a decisive historical role in the elimination of slavery. He determined to keep it a secret, but, says the historian Eusebius, this proved impossible. However much he might wish it, he could not possibly conceal such a thing. When the incident came to the attention of Bishop Demetrius, he was amazed at Origen's headstrong act. He perceived it as evidencing great courage and devotion, but also reckless immaturity. He nevertheless told the young man to put it, young man to put it in his past. A mistake to be repented and forgotten. Origen himself realized it had been an act of folly. As an old man, crippled by torture and near death, he wrote a commentary on Matthew's Gospel. When he came to the twelfth verse of the nineteenth chapter, he wrote that those who practice self-mutilation subject themselves to reviling from people both inside and outside the faith. They may be motivated by an imagined fear of God and an intemperate love of sobriety, but they only bring themselves troubles and bugs bodily amputation, and whatever else the one who gives himself over to such deeds may suffer. He concluded, true purity does not consist in doing violence to the body, but in mortifying the senses for the kingdom of God. The Christian community in Alexandria, meanwhile, seemed to be disinterested or disintegrating. After Clement's departure, there was no one of adequate age and experience to run the catechetical school. Yet Origen, himself a former student of the school under Clement, was winning an ever-widening reputation as both the teacher of secular philosophy and a Christian evangelist. He was only 18, but he had all the other qualifications. He was not a, was not a school with an underage principal better than no school at all? Bishop Demetrius thought so, and invited Origen to take on the job. It would be, it would be no uh, sinecure. Latest's persecution had only begun. Its chief aim was to put a stop to Alexandria's religious ventures, in particular Christianity. To become a Christian was therefore a perilous step to take, and to register in the catechetical school was to invite immediate arrest. To actually operate the catechetical school would seem an act of almost deliberate defiance. Origen certainly knew all this, but he accepted the post anyway. Here, perhaps, 
was far better way of following in his father's footsteps. But would the students come? Come they did, one by one, all the dangers notwithstanding, young men like Plutarch and his brother Heraclus, who would one day become bishop of Alexandria, Severus, Hero, and Cyrenus, and young women like Harius and Potimaeni, names that would names that would be recorded for perpetuity in Eusebius's history, as all but Heracles went to their deaths over the next three years, each steadfastly refusing to deny belief in Jesus Christ. Origen himself accompanied each to prison, visited them all there, and accompanied them to the arena itself to bestow on them the final kiss of peace. So came to the school as students, some just to hear him teach and preach, their numbers all the while growing. The abiding mystery of those three years is why the authorities never arrested Origen himself. The Alexandrian mob detested him. On one occasion, tried to stone him and threatened his home so frequently that soldiers had to be stationed around it to prevent riots. Someone high in the Roman administration, probably a Christian, must have been protecting him. It was God who protects him, the Christians would have said. If so, Origen kept God busy. One day, the mob grabbed him, dragged him to the steps of the temple of Cerebus, cut his hair in a pagan rite, dressed him up as a pagan priest, and ordered him to perform the office of priest by distributing palm branches to the worshippers. Origen complied, put the palm branch, palms in the people's hands, blessed them, and shouted, Come and receive the palms, not of idols, but of Jesus Christ. Amazingly, they let him go. His school in those years was not really a preparation for a Christian life, says one historian, but a preparation for martyrdom. Yet Origen did not preach martyrdom. If you want to receive baptism, he would say to his, convert, to his converts, you must first learn about God's word. Cut away the roots of your vices, correct your barbarous wildlives, and practice meekness and humility. Then you will, fit, you will be fit to receive the grace of the Holy Spirit. His own life mirrored his preaching. When he accepted the principalship of the school, he vowed to live in poverty, sold all the manuscripts that, that in early years he had carefully copied from the great philosophical works, and adopted what Eusebius calls an extremely severe rule of life. He spent his days in strenuous labor and most of his nights in scripture study. He alternated other forms of discipline, sometimes going without food, sometimes going without sleep, and always making his bed on the floor. He accepted he accepted as a stipend four obols a day, considerably less than a day's pay for a common laborer. He was said to cultivate poverty, going without shoes or warm clothing, and eating only the minimum necessary to sustain life. His health soon suffered, and his behavior distressed his friends, who begged him to share their resources. He refused, and became, to know, became known to Christians as Adamantius, the man of steel. In 207, five years after it had begun, the persecution of Christians in Alexandria was suddenly stopped on imperial authority. Immediately, registration in the school soared. Heracles, other brother of the martyr Plutarch, became the assistant principal, teaching preliminary Christian doctrine. Origen's reputation and writings spread among Christian communities all over the empire. In 212, he was invited to Rome to give a lecture. Three years later, a soldier brought letters to Bishop Demetrius and the Roman prefect of Egypt that came from the Roman governor of Arabia, who sought Origen's advice on a matter of doctrine. What doctrine that was has never been discovered. In any event, Origen was dispatched forthwith, stopping along the way to preach in the church in Caesarea at the invitation of Alexander, Bishop of Jerusalem, and Theoctistus, Theoctistus Caesarea's bishop. He returned in 216 to find chaos, both in the Christian community and around it. Bishop Demetrius was furious with him. Did he not know that a layman must never preach before clergymen, especially before bishops? But he had been invited to the bishops to preach, Origen said. Those bishops, responded Demetrius, had committed a major ecclesiastical offense, and Demetrius would certainly let them know. But none of this meant anything to the citizens of Alexandria. They had far more to think about. One of the worst slaughters in the city's history had just occurred, and the instigator was the emperor himself. 
He was Caracalla, and his name would live in the city's annals as synonymous with monstrous depravity. He had planned a state visit to the city that year, and his reputation had preceded him, a reputation for fratricide, for he was known to have murdered his own brother, Geta, by treachery. The youth of Alexandria rather specialized in lampoonery, particularly of officialdom. The witticisms that really irritate, said the historian Herodian, are those that expose the truth of one's shortcomings. Caracalla had a many great had a great many shortcomings that couldn't be that could be exposed. He was a brother killer, yet also a mother lover, a pint-sized buffoon with the crazed idea that he was following in the footsteps of Alexander the Great, all fodder for great satire. Of this frivolity, Caracalla had been fully informed. Approaching the city, he ordered a large public gathering for a gigantic spectacle, a mass slaughter of cattle as an offering to the dead. The citizens swarmed into the streets to welcome him, showering him with flowers and accompanying him with music. He visited the tomb of Alexander the Great and set up his headquarters in the Temple of Serapis. From there, he announced plans for a special unit of his army to be recruited entirely from the young men of Alexandria, who, who should, he said, seat themselves in the front rows of the great festival. As Caracalla addressed his new recruits, units of his German guard stole quietly behind the crowd surrounding it. Others hurriedly dug pits on the outskirts of the assembly. At the signal, a heavily armed troops broke into the crowd, murdering all the young men, none of whom was armed. Their bodies were dragged from the field and dumped into the pits. Further, uh, days of further carnage followed. Hundreds of citizens were murdered in their homes. The city was looted as though conquered by a foreign army. All the schools were clothed, closed, including origins. He escaped and made his way back to Palestine. With one thought, no doubt, pressing on his mind, the earthly fate of the Christians was entirely in the hands of the empire. Many of his pupils had been put to death under an imperial edict issued by Caracalla's father, Severus. So, too, had his own father, Leonides. Now the youth of Alexandria had been butchered through imperial whim. If conditions were to change, then the empire must change. And the center of the empire's power was not Alexandria. She wouldn't yield to her master's advances. So a plucky Christian slave is sent to her death, jeering her executioners. Later, her admiring Roman guard becomes Christian, and he too is killed. The most celebrated of origin students to suffer martyrdom at Alexandria was a comely and very determined female slave named Potamina, who, according to 4th century historian Eusebius, was turned in as a Christian by her master because she kept refusing his advances. Just to make sure she was persuaded to submit, her owner bribed the judge, who ordered her tortured into compliance and then returned to him. But Potamina did not comply, reports the historian Palladius, so she was subjected to more tortures, dreadful and terrible to speak of. Her mother, Marcella, was charged along with her. Finally, the judge threatened to turn Potamina over to the gladiators for bodily abuse if she did not comply. Palladius describes her response. After a little consideration, being asked for her decision, she made a reply which was regarded as impious. She and her mother were then ordered executed forthwith. However, as she, led, as she was led to her death, a strange, things ha- a strange thing happened. As the mob crowded in upon her, jeering and insulting her, the Roman officer escorting her drove them back, expressing his sympathy for her and no doubt his admiration for her astonishing courage. She thanked him for his kind words. His name was Basilides. She would speak on, on his behalf to her lord, she promised, as soon as this ordeal was over. It wasn't over yet. The historian Eusebius described how they dripped burning pitch on various parts of her body, from the soles of her feet to the crown of her head, then finally lit the fire that consumed her. Not long after this, writes Eusebius, being asked by fellow soldiers to swear for a certain reason, Basilides declared that it was not lawful for him to swear at all, for he was a Christian, and he confessed this openly. At first they thought he was jesting, but when he continued to affirm it, he was led to a judge, and acknowledging his conviction, was imprisoned. Amazed, the Christians visited him in jail. What had caused this? they asked. Three days after her martyrdom, said Basilides, Potamina 
had come to him by night, she had placed a crown on his head, and said that she had besought the Lord for him and obtained what she asked. Soon, she said, she would, he would, she would come and take him with her. The Christians baptized him. The next day, concludes Eusebius, after giving glorious testimony to the Lord, he was beheaded. Gnosticism. If it began with Simon Magus, it enjoyed a far more respectable future. Christian lore tells strange tales of the fate of Peter's old foe, but ideals like his secret knowledge would endure for centuries to come. The story of Peter the Apostle's angry confrontation with Simon Magus, the Samaritan religious huckster told in the Acts of the Apostles, leaves open the question of whether Simon repented. If subsequent records are right, he didn't. Or if he did, it didn't last. The 3rd century Christian writer Hippolytus records that Simon later turned up in Rome, traveling with a prostitute named Helen and claiming that he himself was God the Father, while his companion was Sophia, or Wisdom. Thus began a problem that would dog the Christians for the next two centuries and more. The problem was called Gnosticism. As Simon's story went, shortly after he himself had created Wisdom at the beginning of time, she lost control of her fertility and gave birth to seven foolish angels who sought to claim supreme divinity for themselves. So they created the world and imprisoned their goddess mother here on earth in a series of females throughout history. Helen of Troy, for example, God appearing human, God appearing human, had now come down to earth in the guise of Simon to rescue his bride, finding her in a brothel in Tyre. While on earth, he was offering to liberate from this evil world anyone willing to accept his secret and divine knowledge, the Greek word, which is gnosis. For such was the earliest manifestation in Christian history of the Gnostics, the people in the know, a most resilient idea that would persistently reappear. In Rome, according to the apocryphal Acts of Peter, Simon encountered Peter and Paul and also tried to impress the Emperor Nero by flying through the air, only to be dashed to the ground by the Apostles' prayers. Another pious legend has him returning to Rome, from Rome to Samaria, where he promised he would die and rise on the third day. Accordingly, he had himself buried, but he stayed buried. Even so, he was later worshipped as the Messiah by a Samaritan sect. Other mystic teachers soon followed him. They included his fellow Samaritan, Menander, who taught in Antioch, as well as Menander's successor, Saturninus and Cerdo had followed Simon to Rome. Elsewhere, however, Gnosticism had far more respectable credentials. It is generally considered to have originated in Greek philosophy. Platonism, in particular, is believed to have shaped the views of Basilides in Alexandria and Valentinus, who taught there before coming to Rome in AD 140. If these teachers were not inspired by Simon's personal example, none of them claimed to be themselves the supreme god, they certainly emerged from the same cultural stew of eccentric Judaistic spiritualism, Greek philosophy, and Persian mysticism. Most Gnostics claimed to be Christians, as they sought the true Christians, but also inheritors of the Greek and Eastern dualism, which sees good and evil as equally eternal and powerful, and connecting an endless war on earth. To the Christians and Jews before them, God was the only eternal entity. He made their universe, with evil resulting as a corruption of good. The Gnostics could not accept the suggestion that the eternal God could pollute himself by taking on human flesh and enduring real agony in crucifixion, nor could they accept that a good and all-powerful God could, would have, could have created a world so evil. In the mid-2nd century, the Christian gospel was still largely an oral tradition, with an assortment of writings of widely varying reliability, so Gnostics easily reinterpreted the tradition. The true God was entirely unknowable, they said and the visible universe was the creation of a foolish or evil demigod, the Jewish Yahweh. The world and most of the people in it were, complete, were completely unredeemable. However, through the intercession of the true God, some had been granted a divine spark or spirit or pearl. Jesus Christ, a manifestation of God who merely appeared to be human, came to redeem those, who cho those chosen ones as one who makes himself free and awakes from the drunkenness wherein he lived and returns to himself, says the Gnostic Gospel of Truth. What was needed for salvation was knowledge of one's divine identity, identity, which was destined to escape material existence. The Gnostics offered to provide this knowledge, for a price, of course. 
because the Gnostics sold their secrets dearly. In practice, that knowledge was little more than myth, mysticism, astrology, and magic spells differing from one Gnostic sect to another. By the 2nd century, with its intellectual centers in Antioch and Alexandria, Gnosticism had spread wherever there were Christian congregations, Rome, Carthage, Southern Gaul, and Asia Minor. The apostles' immediate successors had been too busy teaching and caring for their communities to translate the good news into the categories of Greek philosophy. So since the Gnostics seemed the first theologians, they were welcomed into wealthy Christian homes in Alexandria. In Rome, Valentinus was almost elected a bishop. Gnosticism's attraction for the effete and sophisticated Greco-Roman world was double-edged. Intellectually, it detached the revelation of Jesus Christ from its Jewish roots and gave a more flattering, for the chosen, explanation of the world's evils. Morally, in simply condemning the world and all human flesh, it encouraged some to engage in extreme austerities. Since nature was corrupt, sex and procreation were evil, they taught. Or, more commonly, since the enlightened considered their minds to be pearls to which no mud could stick, they were free to engage in anarchic, anarchic sexuality, which they did with gusto. The Gnostics began appealing to a succession of teachers back, so they said, to the apostles Philip, Thomas, and Matthias. To these they claimed Jesus entrusted secret knowledge. Rejecting most of the Hebrew and many apostolic writings, they produced their own scriptures. The Cainite sect, descendants of Abel's brother Cain, produced the Gospel of Judas. The Alexandrian Act of Peter describes Peter refusing to heal his paralyzed daughter to, pre to preserve her chastity. Other works include Pistis Sophia, Faith and Reason, The Song of the Pearl, The Acts of Thomas, The Gospel of Mary Magdalene, The Wisdom of Jesus, and The Apocryphon of John. Much fragmentary material was preserved by the Mandeans of the lower Tigris and Euphrates, the last continuously practicing Gnostic sect, whose existence was not discovered by the Western world until the 19th century. The Gnostic challenge forced Christians to respond vigorously. Already in the late 1st century, Ignatius of Antioch had thundered against the Gnostic Docetists, who taught that Jesus was purely divine and that his humanity was merely an appearance. A generation later, it was clear that Christianity's foundational or fundamental beliefs that God's creation was essentially good, that sin was destructive, that God's salvation is rooted in the Jews, that God had entered human history as a real, not a sham, human being, and that the Christians were the continuing body of Christ on earth. All this would have to be defended as a package against the Gnostics. The defenders, however, soon appeared. Christian historian Hegesippus, among others, traveled from Rome to Palestine, documenting the succession of bishops back to the apostles to indicate there had been a person-to-person -person link from the apostles to the present. Clement of Alexandria, boring in on the Gnostics' contradictory attitudes towards sex, demanded they must concede the essential goodness of the created order. Polycarp, Justin, and Irenaeus argued the continuity of the Jewish and Christian revelations and condemned the Gnostics for their lack of charity, trying with words devoid of meaning to gain hearers devoid of faith as Irenaeus described them. They set forth, indeed, the name of Jesus Christ as a sort of lure, he wrote, but in various ways they introduce the impieties of Simon Magus, and thus they destroy multitudes, wickedly disseminating their own doctrines by the use of a good name, through means of its sweetness and beauty, extending to their hearers the bitter and malignant poison of the serpent, the great author of apostasy. Valentinus's activity in Rome represented the high watermark of the Gnostic threat, both because of the depth of his scholarship and the sophistication of his teaching. He was no smarmy poser, as a speculative theological reformer who wanted to revise and incorporate Gnosticism into the emerging Christian orthodoxy. An inheritor of the teachings of Alexandria's Basilides, he moved to Rome in or about 143 and was candidate to be its bishop. Though defeated, he nevertheless served as an aide to Bishop Anicetus ten years later. Valentinus's disciple, Ptolemy, was able to present a, few of a view of Christianity which, says historian W.H.C. Friend, was particularly appealing to women because it gave them a central role in the acquisition of Gnosis. Gnosticism had come a long way from Simon Magus and his prostitute partner. Not far enough, however, for when the Christians became fully conscious of the Gnostic threat, it ceased to be one. By the mid-3rd century, the Gnostic challenge was on the wane, and by the 4th, it had been supplanted by other controversials 
even controversies, even more lethal in their divisiveness. But Gnosticism never did quite die. The Manichaeans of the 4th century North Africa, the Bogomils of the 9th century Balkans, the French, German, and Italian Cathari in the 12th century, the French Albigensians of the 13th century, and the Theosophist movement of the 19th century, England and America, are only a few of the recurring Gnostic revivals. And Gnostic influences can be seen in the alchemy of late medieval and early modern Europe. It seems that whatever, wherever the gospel spreads, some will reinterpret the message of salvation as purely intellectual, reject the body as unredeemable, and often wallow in mud they believe will not stick to their pearl. Indeed, as late as the 20th century, interest in Gnosticism revived with the discovery of a cache of 13 Gnostic books near the southern Egyptian village of Nag Hammadi. These include the Gospel of Thomas, a collection of Jesus' sayings, including the strange assertion that heaven and earth came into being for the sake of the Apostle James, the book of Thomas the Contender, a dialogue between Jesus and Thomas just before Jesus' ascension, a revelation of Adam that has Adam telling Seth how Noah was saved from the flood, and Valentinus' own gospel according to Philip. Spurred by these discoveries, Princeton scholar Elaine Peggles brought out a controversial reassessment of the early church in 1979, Based on and entitled The Gnostic Gospels, it won both the National Book Critics Circle, Critics Circle Award and the National Book Award and was praised for recovering an alternative form of Christianity, flourishing before the early church moved toward becoming an orthodoxy body with rules, rites, and clergy. Simon Magus and Helen would, no doubt, have heartily concurred.